Amen. Amen. Today, um, this psalm that we're, we're studying, we don't know a lot about it, um, but the Jewish tradition is that this psalm was used for the, the beginning or the introduction of a worship service, specifically um, the Sabbath worship service. Or um, they believed it was also used in um, procession singing. And so as, um, as Jewish uh, pilgrims would make their way toward the temple, and when they got very close to the temple, this would have been one of the psalms that they began to sing. And as you see the progression of it, I think you're going to understand why they did this. Because it is indeed an invitation for us to come in and worship our great God that we serve. And then it is also an invitation to, to have a particular disposition or a particular posture before Him. And so one of the things I want you to imagine is if this morning we took this group and instead of coming in like we normally do, let's just say for instance that um, we started out in the parking lot and we, we marched in here in, in lines together. And then we're singing the first few verses. We're saying, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And then we give reason because He's a great God and He is a King over all gods. But then we move into the next part that basically starts talking about the posture, the disposition. Let us come in and bow down. Let us kneel. And so one of the things that would have been happened is they would have progressed from outside of the temple or the tabernacle to the inside of where they were coming into His presence and then they would get into their worship position and they would begin to worship. And so I want to see if you can kind of picture that in your head as they would have been doing this. But I want to break it down for you so that you can understand exactly what this psalm is intending to do for the minds of worshipers. Alright? So there's a purpose in why God inspired this psalm. And I want you to first, before I get into the breakdown of it, I'm going to break it down and show you how to outline it so that you can follow along. But first, I want you to understand this. You were made for worship. You are a worshiper. Whether you realize it or not, every single person in this building is a worshiper of something. You worship every day. And the truth of the matter is, you are going to worship whatever you enjoy the most. Whatever you delight in. Whatever you value the most. That is what you are going to worship. And you're going to do it day after day after day after day. You have no choice. You were made to worship. You remember in the Genesis chapter 1 when uh, the Bible said that He made all the things and then He makes man and He says, let us make man in our image. And then when He makes man, at the end of Genesis chapter 1, He looks at him and He says to him, He says, behold, I have given you all of this, all of the creation, everything that God made, He looked at man and He said, I've given it all to you. And then He says to him, I've given you every plant. I've given you every seed for fruit and for food. I've given you every animal. I've given you every bird. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given to you. The point was this. You were created to enjoy all of this. He made it for you to enjoy. And in the process of it, you were supposed to see Him as the original source of it all, your Maker, the Maker of everything. And the way this was supposed to work is that your chief end or your main purpose in all of life was to glorify God in everything you did and enjoy Him forever. How did you enjoy Him? By all the things that He's given you. The problem is we decided we want His creation, but we don't want Him. That's where it all got twisted. God, we love everything You've given us, but we don't love You. And that is a problem. 
C.S. Lewis says this, We all naturally worship whatever we enjoy and delight in most. Listen to this, and I'm quoting, The most obvious fact about praise, whether praise of God or anything else, it strangely escaped me. I thought of praise in terms of just compliment or approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses like Romeo and Juliet or vice versa. Readers praising their favorite poet or their favorite author. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. People praise the weather. People love to praise different wines or dishes of food or some people love to praise actors or motors and cars or some people praise horses or colleges or countries, historical personages, children. Parents sometimes praise their children. People praise flowers, mountains, rare stamps. Some people even praise rare beetles. And even sometimes people praise politicians. You, you all praise something. The world rings with praise. And listen to this. I have not noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge them to join them in praising it. For instance, isn't she lovely? Or you, you post a picture of your kid on Facebook, and what are you looking for when you do that? You're looking for the comments that come along with it and say, she's so beautiful, or isn't he so cute, or he's so great at baseball, or look at how good a young lady or young gentleman he is. But you want people to join you in praising them. Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that that's magnificent? The psalmists in telling everyone to praise God are only doing what all men do when they speak of what they enjoy most anyway. Your worship always naturally comes out. Whether you're in the mountains and you look at the mountains and the very thing you want to do, you see a snow-peaked hill and you look at it and you just go, wow. And worship overflows from you. And then the way that you fulfill that worship, the way that the enjoyment is finally completed is when you're able to look at someone else and say, isn't that beautiful? Have you ever seen anything like this? We are all worshipers. It's what we do. You cannot help but worship. C.S. Lewis goes on to say this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses our enjoyment, but it completes the enjoyment. It is our appointed consummation. It's not just out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. No, the delight is incomplete until it's expressed. It's not just enough for me to look at my wife and think, wow, she's beautiful. It's not complete until I look at her and express it and say, have I told you how beautiful you are? Right? Or the same way with the ocean. You sit there and you you love to worship and you you sit there and you, you listen to the waves come in. And is there anything wrong with that? No, Amber and him just got back from it. We'll be going for long. We love to sit at the ocean and just listen to the waves roll in and soak up the sun and and play in the sand and, and watch our kids out there in it. And the whole time you are worshiping, whether you realize it or not. But it's not complete until you're able, until she's able to call up Michael and say, Michael, I, I just wished you were here to see this and, and the kids do this and we've enjoyed this so much and I, I love my family so much and I love the ocean so much. And, I, and, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. I, the point is, it's not complete until you're able to share that with somebody else, until somebody else is able to bask in it with you. That's the whole point of worship. It's frustrating to discover a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. It's frustrating to come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent about it because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can laying in the, in the ditch. 
It's frustrating to hear a good joke and there be nobody to share it with. It's frustrating to not be able to express our joy in whatever it is that we delight in the most. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 25 explains this great failure in man. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So God is angry, right? Wrath is revealed. And then he says, It's revealed against ungodliness and it's revealed against unrighteousness. Well, what is the root of it? Look what he says next. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What does it mean to suppress something? To hold it down, right? So they are unrighteous because they're suppressing a truth. What truth are we suppressing? For what can be known about God is plain to them because He has shown it to them. We're suppressing a truth about God that is plain because He has shown it to us. What is it? Well, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power, His divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. Without excuse to do what? Not to worship. For although they knew God, and how did they know God? It's clearly seen when you sit on the ocean and you look out. It is impossible for you to not look at that and go, somebody made that. It's impossible for you to look at the human body, for you to look at the way creation works and say, nobody made it. No, it's plain to them. And although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. So we suppressed His honor, right? Because remember, we were made to look at it, to enjoy it, to fellowship with Him, to walk with Him. And instead of turning around and basking in Him and worshiping the Creator of it all, instead of doing that, we suppress that truth and we say, we refuse your honor, we refuse your worship. And so they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but instead they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. It looked like wisdom. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Because all of His creation were just images of Him. Alright? And we said we would rather have the images than the image, the main thing. And we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts. Well, what was their lust for? For all creation. And God said, okay, you'd rather have the creation than the Creator? Okay. Let me show you what a world looks like when you worship the creation instead of the Creator. How many of you like it so far? Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God. Remember, we suppressed that truth. And we exchanged that truth about God for a lie. And we worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the problem. Do you see this? You are a worshiper and you are going to worship something. And what we have here today is we have an invitation for us to come back to the original design of worshiping and honoring and giving thanks to Him. Now the only way we can come back, because you remember when Adam and Eve failed in their worship in the garden, He cast them out of the garden, right? He cast them out. They could not come back into His presence. And now, God's saying there is a way for you to come back into presence and worship again. And the way that is, we know today, is through the sacrifice that He makes for our failure to worship. And so let me show you first the outline. Verses 1 through 2, you have the invitation to worship. And so if you're drawing this in your Bible, verses 1 through 2, 
you have the invitation to worship. Verses 3 through 5, you're going to have the object of your worship. The object of your worship. What is it that you're being invited to worship? Verses 6 through 7, you're going to have the disposition or the posture of your worship. And verses 7, or actually 8 through 11, but it starts at the end of verse 7, you're going to have the warning of worship. The warning of worship. And that's the way we're going to study the psalm this morning. So let's begin at verses 1 and 2 and look at the invitation of worship. Notice the first part of it. This psalmist says, Oh, come. In other words, the psalmist says, I'm going to worship. And I want you to come with me. It's not complete until we're able to worship Him together. My worship cannot be completed until you join me and you see what I see. And so I want you to come and I want you to join me in worship. This psalmist has found so much joy in God that it can only be completed by having others come and join him in this worship that he is determined to go and do. And notice what he says next in verse 1. Oh, come, let us. So this is not something he wants to do by himself. Oh, come and let us. It is meant for us to gather together as a body. It's meant for us to gather together as worshipers and come together and worship this great God that we serve. And so he says, here's how we're going to worship. I want to invite you to let us sing. I want to invite you to let us sing to the Lord. And then he says next, let us make a joyful noise. And this word actually is translated in some places a battle cry. It's meant to be a joyful shout. Now I know we're Baptists. <laughs> I know we don't do a whole lot of shouting in here. But the fact of the matter is, it's a failure on our part because we don't recognize Him for who He is. And there ought to be such a joy inside of us when we see Him for who He is that there ought to become joyful shouts from us. And so He bids us, come and sing with me. And don't just sing with me. Come and joyfully shout to our Lord together. And then He goes on next in verse uh, uh, at the end of verse 1. He says, we're going to do this to the rock of our salvation. We'll get further into that in the next, um, in the next section. Verse 2, he says, the invitation continues. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. So here again, He's inviting you to sing. He's inviting you to joyfully shout. He's inviting you to come with Him into the presence of God and give thanks to God. And then He's inviting you to make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. And so again, what you see in verses 1 and 2 is just simply, this author has found so much delight and so much enjoyment in God that he wants nothing more than to gather together with God's people and praise God. You want to know why we have such a hard time getting up on Sunday mornings and getting ready and, and coming in here and, um, and coming to Sunday school or, or why we have such a hard time uh, making a regular attendance to worship service. You don't know why that's such a struggle? Because you don't have what this psalmist has. Now, I know that's tough this morning. You want me to tickle years or you want me to tell you the truth? The problem is you don't have what this psalmist has. This psalmist has found that the reason he delights in everything that he delights in is because the Creator is the one that gave it to Him. When this psalmist looks at his kids, you know what ultimately it turns him to? He follows it right back up and he says, God, thank you. Thank you for my children. When this psalmist looks at his grandkids, you know what it ultimately leads him to? God, thank you for my grandbabies. When he enjoys the things that his job are able to provide for him or her, 
You know what he ultimately... He don't just bask in the glory of his new car, his new truck, and say, man, I love that truck. Let me tell you something. I love my old truck. I, I got an old farm truck. I love my truck. I mean, I love my old truck. But at the end of it all, the only reason I have that truck is because the Creator gave me the ability to get out and work, gave me a job, gave me breath, gave me strength, gave me the ability to be able to do it. And at any moment, He can take it all away, can He not? I have every reason in me to praise Him, to glorify Him. And if I understand that, I will be more like this psalmist and I will want others to come together with me. Let's get together and let me invite you to worship and sing and to shout to Him. And then next we move into the object of our worship. The object of our worship. Verses 3 through 5. The first word of verse 3 is four. For the Lord is a great God. Here's the, here's the reason we worship. Here's the object of our worship. The Lord is a great God. That word great means overall. In other words, He's not just a God. He is a God that is over all. That's the object of our worship. And then not only that, but if you were back up to verse 1, notice what He says at the end of it. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. The only reason I'm even able to come into His presence and worship Him is because He has redeemed me from my failure to worship Him to begin with. He has redeemed me from that dark exchange that I made when I said I would rather have the picture than the reality. Let me put it on a little level that you might understand. It's not even close, but at least give you a little understanding. Those of you that have children or grandchildren, would you rather have the pitcher or the child? But what if you were dumb enough, just dumb enough, to say, you know what? I'd rather just have the pitcher. You can take the child. Keep it. I don't want it. it means nothing to me. The pitcher is what I need. Does that make any sense at all? And yet, that's still just a small glimpse of what it is that you and I do whenever we would prefer the image over the Creator. And so the object of our worship is the rock of our salvation, the one that has redeemed us from that great failure. And He says to us, He is a great God. In other words, He is over all gods. And then, not only that, He is a great King above all gods. Again, over all. He's a King over all other gods, if there were such thing as any other gods. And so he says here, this is the king over everything else that you worship, over every other god that's in your life. This is the great God, the king over all gods. And then notice what he says in verse 4. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountain are his also. You know basically what this is saying? That old children's song you used to sing. He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got the whole wide world in His hands. He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got the whole world in His hands. He's got the depths of the sea and the earth in His hands. He's got the heights of the mountains. In other words, there is nothing that is not in His hand. This is just speaking of His greatness. Now can I give you just a few facts to try to bring this into perspective for you? A few facts just about the deepest places of the earth, the ocean. The deepest point of the earth in the ocean is 35,876 feet or 6.79 miles. That's how far it is to the bottom. If you were able to swim there, it would feel like 50 jumbo jets were sitting on top of you, crushing you. The ocean's canyons make the Grand Canyon seem little bitty. The planet's longest mountain range is actually underwater, and it is ten times longer than the mountain range that is above water, called the Andes Mountain. 
The Andes Mountains stretches about 4,300 miles, but the mountain underneath the water is called the Mid-Oceanic Ridge. It is 40,390 miles long. At the ocean's widest point, from Indonesia all the way to Colombia, the Pacific Ocean is wider than the moon by five times. The ocean is home to nearly 95% of all life. 95% of all life. The ocean plant life provides over 70% of the atmosphere's oxygen. We have better maps of Mars than we have of the ocean floor. Let me say that again. We have better maps of Mars 30-something million miles away at its closest point is where Mars is. At its furthest point, depending on the rotation, somewhere around 174 million miles away. And yet you have better maps of Mars than you have of your ocean. More than 90% of the planet's life forms are undiscovered and underwater. Yet the psalmist says the deepest places are in his hand and the highest places are in his hands. And he takes care of all of them. He is a great God. The sea and the earth are His. Notice what it says in verse 5. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Again, the psalmist is just trying to help you understand that if you don't have any other reason to praise Him, just look around. Just look around. But you know what the problem is with this? And I've said this before, so if you've heard it, forgive me. The problem with this is that this has all become normal to us. We get up in the mornings and look up and see this beautiful ball of fire rising up in the sky and we look at it and go, yeah, that just happens every day. We get up every morning and, and we see life living, we see breathing and we see our kids walking around and playing and we get up every day and we look at it and go, that's just normal. That's just normal. One of the things that I love about little children, and I've said this before too, little babies. I love to watch little babies when they first begin to open their eyes and they first begin to see this world. Have you ever noticed a little kid, whenever they open their eyes, they're going... You thought they're looking at you that way because you're funny. Well, you are, but that's not why they're looking at you that way. They're looking at all of this because they've never seen it before. This is not normal. Where am I? What is this place? Who does this? But we look at all of this creation and you and I get up every day and we walk through this world like, eh, it's just the world we live in. It's just life. And here the psalmist brings us back to reality and he says, guys, you need to look around. This is a great God that we serve. This is a God above all other gods, a great king above all other kings. The sea is His. He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. So what we see here is that we have an object of worship that is worthy of our worship. Beginning with, He's the rock of our salvation, but then just look at who He is. Just look at who He is. Next, we move into verse 6 or 7, the disposition or the, the posture of worship. Notice in verse um, 6, he says, Oh, come. So we move into another invitation. Here's where I feel like, if I'm interpreting this right, if he's leading a people into worship, he's leading them now into the next place to where they are not just going to sing and praise and make joyful shouts, but now they're going to get into a worship position. The reason I say that is because when we translate it, let us worship, bow down, let us kneel. These could also be translated, let us bow down, bow down, bow down. You could translate it the same word. It's not the same word, but they all mean the same thing. The difference is they mean bowing down in different ways. For instance, when we translate verse 6, O come, let us worship. This word is also translated in many places in Genesis as bowing toward the ground. Literally, it's where you would come in and you would bow. I'm not talking about all the way down on the ground. 
I'm just talking about bow. So he says, oh come, let us bow. And then he moves on to the next part and he says, and bow down. This word in Genesis chapter 49 verse 9 is actually translated to crouch like a lion. It says, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down, and then here's where we have the exact same word. And he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? You ever watched a lion or a cat? What does a cat do when it's getting ready to attack a prey? It gets down on all fours real low, right? And it's crouching, and it's waiting to attack. Well, this is the posture that this psalmist is inviting us to. He says, first off, let us come in and bow down. And then he says, let us come in and crouch down like a lion. So now he has moved down to his knees and he is on his face with his hands down. And then he says, and in the end of verse 6, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And so basically what you have is he comes in, he bows, he gets down on all fours, and then he gets up, and now he's on his knees again. And this is the posture. Do y'all see what I'm saying? This is the disposition of worship. Now, let me say this before y'all get scared and start thinking that's what we're fixed to start doing every Sunday. Alright? That's not what we're talking about here. He is inviting them to come in and join him in this posture. But one thing that you need to understand is that what we see here is a call to a particular place in your heart. A place that you understand. There are many postures in the Bible of worship and we'll look at them here in just a minute. But this is about expressing our humility before God. This is about expressing that we recognize His greatness. What did people do in, in older days when they came before a king? They bowed down. You know why they bowed down? Because they recognized His greatness. They recognized His authority. And one way to express that was, it, and again, it wasn't just enough to come in and just say, okay, I recognize that He's the King, and then just stand there. It wasn't complete until He expressed that in some gesture, in some posture that, that said, I understand that you are great and I am humble. I understand that you have authority and I am a subject. I understand this and I represent this. This position that you see here or this posture says, I submit to the authority as the Creator, as my Savior, as the great and sovereign King over all other kings. I surrender, I submit to that. We don't do that today. Why? Because we think we're the authority. You know what the problem with our culture and our generation is? We don't like authority. We don't want authority. You wonder why kids, people get shot by the police all the time? It ain't just the color of your skin. Does that happen sometimes? Maybe. You want to know why it happens most of the time? Because people don't submit to authority. I don't want authority. You don't tell me what to do. I'm God, not you. Ain't that the truth? And so one of the problems is our culture doesn't recognize greatness. Our culture doesn't recognize authority. If we did, our posture would be different. If we did, it wouldn't be a struggle for you or I to humble ourselves before Him. But it is, ain't it? If I were to ask you all right now to get out of your seat and let's just all get on our hands and knees. Some might. Most won't. Right? Come on, you want a preacher this morning? You want me to tickle years? Well, you won't. Most won't. Because we don't recognize authority. This is why the commandment started with, you remember the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And then it followed by, you shall not bow down to them. You shall not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. In other words, you don't represent and you don't express any kind of humility and any kind of subjection to anyone except the true authority. There is only one authority. 
There is only one that is the Creator and the Savior of us all. And He is the only one that we bow to. That is what He calls us to in the Ten Commandments. And as I said before, there are many postures that are acceptable for worship. For instance, Jesus fell on His face in Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. You don't have to go there. I'll just give you these as reference. Jesus would fall on His face to pray to the Lord. And if, if the very Son of God falls on His face to talk to the Lord, probably a pretty good example for us, right? Um, other places, the Levites were commanded to stand as they worshiped. First Chronicles chapter 23, verse 30, they are supposed to stand in the morning and stand in the evening as they worship. And then David went in and sat before the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18. So he sat down. Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven to pray in John chapter 17, verse 1. Uh, Paul exhorted us to lift up holy hands as we pray. And so there are all kind of postures that we see in the Bible. But the point is this. I'm not trying to tell you that we need to, to come in here and change our worship to bowing down and to getting on all fours. Or I'm not even telling you that everybody ought to raise their hands. I'm not telling you that everybody ought to lift up their eyes when they pray. No, Jesus told a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Do you remember what the tax collector said? He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But instead, the only thing he would do is beat his chest. Say, Lord, forgive me. I'm a sinner. So I'm not telling you that there is always a particular posture that we have to adopt in order to worship. But I am telling you this. There ought to be an expression from us in some way. Some way. I don't care if it's lifting hands. I don't care if it's bowed heads. I don't care if it's looking up. I don't care if it's sitting in the presence of the Lord. I don't care what it is. But there ought to be a posture of some kind that says, God, I recognize that You are a great God. I recognize that You are a great Savior. I recognize that You are my God. I recognize that I am sheep of Your pasture. Notice what he says next in verse 7. For He is our God. Who is He? We'll go back to verse uh, 1. The rock of our salvation. Who is He? Go to verse 3. The great God over all. The great King above all other gods. Who is He? Verse 4. He is the one that has in His hands the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains. Verse 5. He is the one that the sea is His, for He made it and His hands formed the dry land. He is our God. He chose you to be His. That ought to mean something to you. He is our God. And we are the people of His pasture. It belongs to Him. And we are the sheep of His hand. And here you could also translate, we are His flock under His care. So we are to come and we are to gather together. And we are to sing praise. And we are to make joyful shouts. And we ought to, we ought to, um, to, to, uh, come to, into His presence with thanksgiving. And we are to humble ourselves before Him. And we are to posture and disposition ourselves in a, in, in a way that recognizes His greatness and His authority. That's the invitation this morning. You're being invited to do that very thing. And then we move finally into the warning of verse 8 through 11, or the end of verse 7. Look at the very end of verse 7. We get into the warning. Today, if you hear His voice... Now everybody ain't going to hear it. Y'all with me? Everybody in this building this morning ain't going to hear it. You're not. Some of you went to sleep long before I ever started. <laughs> I get it. I get it. But if you do hear His voice, if you hear Him, there's a warning for you. Look at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. That's the first warning you have. Don't harden your heart. How do we harden our heart? Well, let's look at the example. The example in verse 8, he says, As at Meribah, 
as on the day of Massa in the wilderness. Well, let's look at that real quick. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Let's look at the example so we understand what are we being warned for. If God's got a warning for you this morning, do you want to hear it? Do you want to understand it? Here it is. Verse 1 of chapter 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now think about it. What all have they seen God do at this point? They've seen God overcome all of the Egyptian gods with all the plagues. They have seen God part the Red Sea and the waters. They have seen God rain bread from heaven, rain quail and meat for them when they were hungry. And now here they are again saying, well now we're thirsty. And then... Moses says, why do you test the Lord? Verse 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Let me ask you a question. If God will overthrow all the Egyptian gods, if God will part the Red Sea for you to walk across on dry land, if God will rain bread and meat from heaven, do you think He brought you out here to kill you? Keep going with me in verse 4. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by what? By saying, is the Lord among us or not? After all they had seen, after all the evidence that they had around them, after all that God had done for them, Every point they still tested the Lord and said, okay, is God still with us? Yeah, He was with us back in Egypt when we saw Him do this, but now we got the Red Sea in front of us. So is God really with us? Look with me at Exodus 14, verses 11 through 13. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? It is not, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And this was when they were standing in front of the Red Sea. So at every stage... After all they see God do, they come to the next stage and they go, it would have just been better if we died. Did you bring us out here to die? In other words, they never believed that God was going to take care of them, that God was with them, that God was going to save them. They never truly believed it. Look at Exodus chapter 16, verse 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat, the pots, and we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so God rains bread from heaven and He rains meat on top of them. And the point is that when you study it, what you see is that all through every stage of God's salvation, bringing them out, they never believe God. They never trust God. They get to another trial and they look at it and they go, I just wished I'd have never been born. I just wished that you would have just killed me back here instead of believing God and trusting God. Finally, look at Numbers chapter 14, verse 22 and 23. 
I'm getting close to the end. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, none of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despised me shall see it. God made a promise. They have seen all the evidence of who I am. They have seen my great salvation and yet at every stage they still refuse to believe and they still put me to the test. Is God going to provide for me? Is He going to kill me? Is God going to do this or is He not? And God says, you know what? If you don't believe me, if you don't trust me, you're not going to see my rest. And so I want you to look with me again at the warning of Psalm 95 and verse 8 again. Do If you hear His voice, don't harden your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. Guys, can you not look at the evidence of the salvation of God in your life? Did He deliver you out of Egypt? Yes and no. He delivered you out of sin. He has given you a great salvation with His mighty hand. He sent His only begotten Son to pay the price for your sin. Can you not look around at the evidence of His love for you and see that He is a great God worthy of worship? Can you not look around at the evidence of creation all around you and recognize that He is a great God and that it's all in His hands? If you hear His voice today, don't harden your heart and refuse Him worship. Don't harden your heart and not believe Him. But instead, He's inviting you. Come and worship this great God. Come and give Him the honor that He deserves. Come give Him the thanks that He deserves. And then in verse 9, He says, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Here's the second warning. Don't put Him to the test or to the proof. And we could do this by seeing all the evidence of who He is, all the evidence of the love that He has for us, of His great salvation, but not continuing in our worship of Him, not believing in the midst of our suffering. We can put Him to the test the same way that they did. God brings suffering your way and you look at Him and you say, it would have just been better if you'd have just left me back here in my sin. At least back there I had this and I had that. At least back there I didn't have to deal with this and this and this. And God said, don't put me to the test. Don't put me to the proof. Why? Because He's already proven. Does God have anything else to prove to you? Answer that. Does God have anything else to prove to you? Nothing. If God don't do anything else for you other than give you His Son, does He owe you anything? (laughs) Don't put Him to the test. Don't harden your heart. Don't look for the proof. Verse 10, For forty years I loathed that generation and said they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known My ways. Here's the last warning. Don't grieve God. Don't make Him angry by having hearts that keep going astray. And what He means by that, going into unbelief. Not trusting Him. Not recognizing Him for who He is. Refusing Him as worship. Not listening to His Word. Remember how it started out? Today, if you hear His voice. You know why it says today? Because He's not still speaking to the Israelites. Who's He speaking to today? Today. If you hear His voice, they heard His voice too, but they didn't believe. They didn't trust. Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. Don't put Him to the test. Don't grieve Him and make Him angry by going astray in your heart, by not listening to His Word, by not being obedient to Him in faith. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Look at what God had promised them. God told them, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land 
to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Parasites, the, the Hivites, and the Jebusites? The point being is this. Did God not promise them before He ever gave the first plague in Egypt that I am going to deliver you? I've heard your cry. I'm going to bring you out of here and I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey. Has God not spoken the same word to you? I've heard your cry. I'm going to save you and I'm going to bring you into the land. And I'm going to walk you every step of the way. Is there going to be times of hunger involved? Yep. Is there going to be times of thirst involved? Yep. Is there going to be times of suffering involved? Yep. Is God going to put you to the test? Yep. But don't harden your heart. If you hear His voice, listen to Him. Listen to Him and give Him the worship that is due Him, the obedience that is due Him in closing. You worship whatever you delight in the most. Let me say that one more time. You worship whatever you delight in the most. Look at your life right now. Whatever it is that, that, you, that you spend your, your heart in, your time in, whatever it is that, that you enjoy most in life, that is what you worship. Hopefully, you can turn that worship now toward the originator of it, and you can look at Him and you can say, you are a great God. A God above all other gods. You are the rock of my salvation and you have proven your love and your care for me. I enjoy everything around here, but none of it compares to you because it's all just images And I hope that your worship can be redirected. I hope that you can say with this psalmist, I hope next Sunday rolls around, you can not just hit the snooze button and say, "Ah, I don't want to go to work today, or I don't want to go to church today. I hope that you can say with the psalmist, Oh, come. Let us come together and sing together. Let us come together and, and, and position ourselves in a place of humility and, and recognize His authority and worship Him and honor Him for who He is and give Him the, what is due to Him. We are to sing and shout joyfully. We are to proclaim how great He is. We are to display uh, uh, His, His greatness to Him in, in, in expressions of our postures, our voices, and everything that we do. We are to do this with hearts that continue to believe Him, continue to trust Him, continue to hope in Him, firm to the end and through it all. And here's the end of it. If you don't do this, if you won't do this, I can promise you, here's the ultimate warning, you will not enter His rest. You want to know why? Because the evidence is you didn't believe He was who He said He was. You didn't believe He loved you the way He said He loved you. You didn't believe He was the rock of your salvation. You didn't believe that He was a great God with it all in His hand. You didn't believe that He is the great I Am, the Creator of it all, and He is worthy of worship and praise. And if you do not believe, you will not enter His rest. That's the warning.